Well, good morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. If you want to flip there. Uh, starting at the beginning of this year, I made uh, multiple resolutions. One of them to, was to read a book a month. And I actually have maintained that because I have been reading the Chronicles of Narnia. And I know we took a poll, and I was surprised at how many people had not read those books. And so I'm just going to put another shameless plug here that you should read them because they are that good. I actually read them, and now I'm listening to them in audiobook again. And uh, I share this because one of my favorite aspects about the Chronicles of Narnia series is the illustrations in them about the Christian life. I mean, if you, you're familiar with them, probably the most famous one is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan gives his life for a guilty child, and then he raises back from the dead. Obviously, direct comparison to Jesus giving his life. And I just got done listening to Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which has probably my favorite illustration in it, which applies to what we're going to be talking about today. Because just a real quick backstory, uh, children from England end up going to Narnia. They get on this boat. They're trying to sail to the world's end. And one of the children that was on this boat, his name is Eustace, and he is just a stuck-up, spoiled little brat. And through the whole story, he is just like driving everybody off the wall. He is entitled. He is privileged. He is just so annoying. And he ends up going on this one island, finds some treasure, puts it on his arm, falls asleep. And next thing he realizes when he wakes up, he's a dragon. He's transformed into a literal fire-breathing dragon. And so he spins a little while as a dragon, and finally he is ready to no longer be a dragon, and so he meets the hero of the story, Aslan, who is the representative of God. And Aslan tells him to go get in the water, and he will be able to no longer be a dragon. But he says, first you must undress yourself. And so Eustace looks at himself and he's like, I'm a dragon. I don't have any clothes on. How do I undress myself? But then he realized he's a reptile. Reptiles shed their skin. So he starts scratching away and the skin just starts falling off. And finally he gets all the skin off and he's getting ready to get in the water and he looks down and he's still a dragon. And so he thinks, okay, maybe I have multiple layers of skin on, so I'm going to have to get them off. So he starts scratching himself more, more skin comes off, gets ready to get in the water. He's still a dragon. And then he tries one more time to get all of his skin off, and he gets to the water and he realizes, I can't do this. No matter how hard I try, I'm still a dragon. And I just thought, man, there's such a correlation there. That no matter how hard we try to change ourselves, we still are quote-unquote dragons. We cannot undragon ourselves. We're not able to. Think about it. How many times have you tried to, man, I'm trying to do resolutions this year, and I'm already quitting left and right. The harder I try, the more I want to quit. The more I want to give up this thing, the more my body tells me you want sugar. You want unhealthy food. The more you try and give up an unhealthy addiction or even just an unhealthy um, way of life, it seems like it just jumps back at us more and more. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. 
The harder I tried to quit, the more I wanted it. To where I, the thing I want to do, I'm not doing, and the thing I don't want to do, I keep on doing. What a wretched man that I am. And it, it just lines up. The harder we try, it seems, to undragon ourselves, it seems like the more of a dragon we become. The more, as we've talked about in the Bible, illustrates it, it's a snare that entraps us. And the harder you try and pull yourself out of a snare, the tighter it grips itself around you. And as Paul's going to tell us in Ephesians, that's how we were. But because of what God did and is doing, it's not who we are if we're in Jesus. Because we're continuing with the series on identity where we're trying to base our identity not off of what we've done, because so often that's what follows us. Oh, you're just going to be a cheat. You're just going to be a liar. You're just going to be a screw-up, a failure. Whatever it is, you're going to be defined by your past. And we struggle getting out of that identity in ourselves. But it's not based on what we've done in the past or who we were, but this whole series is based on whose we are, that we are children of God, that we are chosen by God, that we have been redeemed from death and from slavery, that we have been saved for an eternal life with Jesus. And today we're going to see how we were dead, but because of what God did, we are alive. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. And it's like Paul is just all of a sudden just like vomiting these words on the paper because these seven verses in the original Greek are one sentence. And it's like Paul is just like, I got so much to say, I'm just going to get it out there. And so if you'll stand as we read our passage this morning and open up in a word of prayer. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Father God, there is so much right there. And God, right there we see the essence of the gospel that it is solely what you have done for us. And so God, I just pray that now as we kind of dive into the meaning of these words a bit more, God, let it just be your words that flow from my mouth and let your words fall upon hearts that are willing to be transformed and molded and let this message truly impact our lives so that we can live to glorify you in everything that we do. God, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. And so Paul's been going through kind of really just introducing the book of Ephesians, and he's really just been hitting on this is who Jesus is. He reiterates in there multiple times to the praise of his glory. And he's really been talking about Jesus is 
pretty much just amazing. I mean, at the end of chapter 1 in verse 20, Paul says that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then this is who Jesus is. He is far above Lost my place. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Paul has just ended this section in chapter 1 by just saying, Jesus is ruler of all. Jesus is above all. He, his name is above all. He is ruler over all. If anything is good, perfect, amazing, great, any good adjective you want to use, Jesus is it. Jesus is, I'm just going to say, amazing. And that still falls so short. And then Paul makes this really weird transition. It's not even weird. But it's like, yeah, Jesus, he's amazing. He's great. And then Paul goes, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the, son, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You carried out the desires and the passions of your flesh and of your body. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's like Paul is just going up, 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 and then he hits us and it just drops. You were dead. You weren't desiring God. You weren't seeking God. You weren't doing anything to glorify God. It's like if you were ever, um, I dabbled in this before I met Heather, Christian Mingle. Not my brightest moment. I got desperate for a moment where it was like, all right, there's got to be somebody out there. I'm going to go for Christian Mingle. And what you do when you're making a profile on Christian Mingle, don't judge me, please. Um, <laughs> God brought me Heather, and I am so grateful for that. Um, but everybody has their downfalls. So you make a profile. And so everybody in their profile is like, I like long walks on the beach. I'm tall, dark, and handsome. I have a great personality. Um, I'm great with kids. I can cook really well. Everybody is highlighting their best parts. Whereas Paul is saying, if you were to make a Christian Mingle profile and you were to be honest about it, you'd be saying, well, uh, if my body wants it, I give it. If my mind thinks it, I dwell on it. If the world is doing it, I'm going to follow it. I don't even control my own life. I'm a slave to my body and my mind. And I'm also following Satan. Sounds real good. The kind of person that everybody is looking to date. But in all reality, that is who Paul is saying we are. You were dead. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. You were carrying out the desires of your body and your mind. You were by nature children of wrath. Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to say all those things, but it's true. And because of those things, we are spiritually alienated from God. We are spiritually dead. Paul hits on this multiple times. He says in Galatians 5, he says, The works of the flesh are evident, and we carried out these because Paul already said, we followed the course of this error. We carried out the desires and the passions of the flesh. And he says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such evil things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now catch this next part. And such were you. No, I don't do any of that stuff. Paul saying... Such were you. Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead. You were carrying out the desires of your body and your flesh. He says in Colossians 3, 5 through 6, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This is in all of us because we are children of wrath. We have a sin nature. And so this is in us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You are by nature children of wrath. And because of these things, God's wrath is coming. And again, it's like, well, I, I have never done any of those things on that list. I might have like had them pop in my head, but I've never actually carried them out. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, where he takes, you have heard that it is said that if anyone has sex with someone who is not their spouse, they are guilty of adultery. And Jesus says, but I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you are guilty. So Jesus is saying that when it comes to meeting God's standard, it's not the action, it's the heart. And suddenly every single person is guilty of that. And you have heard that it is said that you shall not kill your brother. But Jesus says, I tell you, anybody who is angry with their brother has already committed adultery. So it's not just that you killed them, it's that you flipped them off in your car when they cut you off. It's that you had those evil words in your mind that you said, boy, good thing I never said those. And Jesus is like, but you're still guilty. You still are not, as Jesus says in Matthew five forty-eight, perfect as he is perfect. And so we all are guilty of this. You see, God's wrath is coming on all those things. And maybe you're a like glasses half full kind of person and you're like, okay, that seems a little extreme. I mean, yeah, I lie. I don't think I deserve death like that in eternal hell. I'm still a pretty good person. Whereas what we need to realize is the severity of the sin is dependent on who you sin against. Look at it this way. If you lie to me, I might not trust you. That's pretty much the extent of that consequence. But if you lie to a judge under oath, you're going to get thrown in prison. If you trespass on my property, I'll come out and talk to you. But if you trespass on the White House, you might get shot or you're going to jail. Who you sin against determines the severity of the sin. 
How much worse is it when we sin, not against me, not against you, but against the almighty, holy, and perfect God? You see, David, he knew about this. Because David's up on his rooftop when the kings are supposed to be out at war, and he's hanging back on his rooftop. He looks over, sees Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop, and he's like, I like that. So he says, go get her for me. And she comes over, and he ends up having relations with her, and she gets pregnant. So now he's busted. But he's got to cover it up. So he calls for her husband to come back from war and thinks, all right, he'll sleep with her. He doesn't. So then David's like, if I get him drunk, he'll sleep with her. He still doesn't. So then David's like, I got to cover this up somehow. I'm going to send him to the front lines with a message to the commander that when he's up front, call all the men back and it'll be one verse a thousand. And that plan fulfilled. And David thought he got away with it until Nathan the prophet came to David. And gives him a little illustration in which David is missing the point. And so David's like, bring that man to me and I will have him killed. And Nathan says, you're that man. You're the guilty one in this story, David. And so then David pins Psalm 51 where David, he had this man killed. He slept with this man's wife. If you were to ask who is the um, offended in this instance, it would be Uriah. But instead, David says in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, you alone, have I sinned. His sin, he realizes, is not against anybody else. It is against Jesus. The severity of our sin is dependent on who we sin against, but all our sin is against God. And so therefore, the wrath of God is coming because of that. And we are all guilty. As Paul just told us, you were dead. You were caught up in the sins and the trespasses. You were following the course of this world. You were doing all of this stuff. And God made a promise. He said, I'm holy. I cannot be in the presence of sin. I cannot be, I, he says, I hate sin. I want nothing to do with it. His wrath is coming on sin. And God being a God of his word has to fulfill it. And then we get to my favorite words. In verse four of Ephesians two, you were dead. You were carrying out your desires of your flesh and your body. You were following the course of the world. You were pretty much worshiping Satan. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. It's like, man, everything looks like it's all headed for eternal death, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. But God, when we were dead, he did what we could never do. You were dead. You were destined for hell. You were on a one-way ticket with absolutely no way to undragon yourself, but God stepped in and did what only God could do. You see, God was going to direct his wrath on something, on our sin, which we were a part of. And instead of directing his wrath on us, 
He put his love towards us and his mercy towards us. He withheld his wrath from us. And it's not out of obligation. As Micah 7.18 tells us in the NIV, I love the way the NIV version says it. But it says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. The NIV says he delights in mercy. God takes joy in showing mercy to us. It thrills God to save people. To not see them go to hell, which is totally where everybody is deserving to go. But instead to bring them into his family. In Luke, he shares the parable of the lost sheep. And then he ends that parable with, There is greater rejoicing over the one lost sheep that returns than over the 99 that stay. Because God is a God who delights in mercy. Notice, what is the reason that God had for showing mercy, for extending love to us? It, does, it doesn't say, but they changed their ways, or but they decided to try and pay him back. It doesn't say a single thing based on what we did. It is solely but God. And then in verse 5, he says, even when you were dead in your trespasses, even before you could give your life over to him, but God, because of his great love for us. You see, I read it this week. And it said, the very reason for God's mercy and love is found in him. We give him no reason to love us, Yet in the greatness of his love, he loves us with that great love anyways. Therefore, this part kind of hit me. We must stop trying to make ourselves lovable to God and simply receive his great love while recognizing that we're unworthy of it. This is the great secret of the Christian life. When you realize it's solely because of God, then you stop trying to polish yourself up. And instead, you just live in the love and the mercy that God sends you. Because the harder that we try on our own merit, the more we realize we are dragons. And we have to surrender over to Jesus. God acted purely out of his love, and he did all the work. And it's because of this that God now gives us a new status and a new identity. Because it was dead. And now it's alive. That when you give your life over to Jesus, you are no longer dead, but you are alive. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God made the first move. 
You see, if, if God were to have sat back and said, I'll wait until they come to me, he would still be waiting. 100% of the people, he would still be waiting on them. We would never make that first step towards God. You did not even make that first step towards God. Jesus says in John 6, 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. You can't even come to God unless it's God drawing you initially. Because without God, you're dead and you're a slave to Satan. And you're following your body and your mind. And then God reaches out to you and draws you to him. And then when you respond to that, you are made alive. When we come to Christ, we're made alive. And therefore, because of that, we live differently. Therefore, we no longer live in the ways of the flesh and in the ways of the world. This other author said this, A dead man feels comfortable in his coffin. But if, we, if he were to be made alive again, he would instantly feel suffocated and uncomfortable. There would be a strong urge to escape the coffin and leave it behind. In the same way, when we were spiritually dead, we felt comfortable in our trespasses and sins. But having come to a new life, we feel we must escape that coffin and leave it behind. When we were dead in our trespasses, it was fine. We, we felt comfortable in our sins. But when you respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, then suddenly those things are just nasty. And yeah, there might still be that horrible draw to it, but we don't feel comfortable in it. We want to get away from it. We carry that, that conviction about it because God is working in us. Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. We read these, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you are filled with the Spirit, you will produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have died to that. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You don't live in those things anymore. But instead, now you live for the Spirit. When you surrender your life to Christ, you die to the things of old, to the, to the passions of your flesh, to the desires of your mind, and you rise to life with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we con to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. We, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, Paul is saying, baptism does not save you, but it is a great illustration of what God did for you and in you. Notice the words that he uses there. He says, when you were baptized into his death, going under the water... We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, being immersed in the water. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too come out of the water and we walk in a newness of life. You see, you're not saved by this act, but it identifies what God has done in you. That you died to your sin. That you were buried with Jesus and then you raise again as a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You have been made new. You see, Eustace, he didn't stay as a dragon because he's sitting there at the pool and he realizes as much as he tries to rip off all of his skin, he's still a dragon. And so finally he kind of gives up and then Aslan says to him, I have to unclothe you. I have to be the one to do this. And so what Aslan does is he takes his claws and he rips them into Eustace's skin and Eustace says it hurts so bad, but it feels so good at the same time because there is a relief Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Because it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole soul to go into hell. And so it hurts, but it's so good to do so. And so Aslan's digging into him and he's losing his skin. And then he's just standing there and Aslan says, now enter into the water and I will dress you. And he's like, but with what? I don't have any clothes here. And Aslan says, I will give you new clothes to wear. Again, I love the symbolism there and the illustration of everything that God does for us. We can't undragon ourselves. So God does the work for us. And man, honestly, sometimes it hurts because it means cutting off relationships. It means cutting off substances that were so much a part of your life for so long. It means cutting off influences, cutting off financial income, cutting off so many things that we were dependent on, but we get rid of them because we allow God to work in us. And it hurts, but it feels so good to just walk in the newness of life. And then God clothes us with only the clothing that he can. He makes us his children. If you are in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. You are a new creation. You're no longer dead, but you're alive. Paul says in Colossians again, he says, in him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made not with hands, but by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision that only Christ can do. 
Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he did by nailing it to the cross. You are a new creation if you have been washed by the blood of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in the work that Jesus did on the cross. So how does that affect us today? If, if, if you realize that this is true, then it gives you an eternal hope. It changes how you live because you no longer live with the dread and the guilt and the regret of the past because you're not defined by that. But instead, you're living for the eternal hope that is ahead of us, found in the redeeming work of Jesus. That you get to, because you are now alive, you get to live with connection, intimacy, and relationship with God, the Father Almighty. All this is through Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you're still dead. You are a zombie. You're walking dead on this earth until at some point you experience what true death is like. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because I was dead. I was carrying out the desires of my body and my flesh. I was following the course of this world. I was following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And I was by nature a child of wrath, but God stepped into my life. And all I did was receive the free gift that he offered me. And he is offering to every single person here this morning as well. If you have not received it, he is offering it to you. If you have received it, walk in it. Not as dead, but as living children of God. And let that be what your identity is found in. God, I want to say thank you. Because as your word says, it is solely because of what you have done. God, I didn't make the first move. Nobody here made the first move towards you. You sought after us and you worked in our hearts and you called us. And God, if anybody here has not responded to the call and they're feeling that tug in their heart, that is you calling them to you. God, let them respond to that. And then let the rest of us just live in the identity that you're giving us as your children, that we have life, and not just life based on this earth, but life eternally that can never be taken away from us. God, you're working in your people, so I just pray that we be receptive to it. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this.